Mark, hymn number 195, as Adam has asked that we do, I would ask that you think a bit more with me about a series of lessons that we began together this morning. On that occasion, as we desired and sought to obtain a deeper and richer understanding of the church, we on that occasion learned something about the character of answering the question, what is the church? And on that occasion, we learned that it was the body of Christ, it is the ecclesia discussed and mentioned in the New Testament, and what's more, it is the kingdom spoken of as the singular kingdom that God would establish upon earth, and finally, it is the pillar and ground of the truth. All of those, of course, are subjects that are of great interest to you and me, but as we march forward in our discussion and our thought about the church, might I ask you to think with me tonight about an issue that I would hope would deepen our appreciation for the richness and the great value that the church has. Isn't it fair to say, by way of introduction, that typically you and I have a great deal of appreciation for those items and those entities that have stood the test of time? After all, we perhaps turn our attention toward purchasing a car that we trust will last not just until next year. We trust that, all things being equal, it shall last a good amount of time. In fact, even those institutions we trust, if they have a degree of capability of having been tested and have stood the test of man's sinfulness, the fact of man's fancifulness, and are still able to stand as a result of it. For instance, those we are told who have visited Europe, and maybe some of you have done that, Sometimes as you walk across the land that is the continent of Europe, you come face to face with structures that are 700 years old. Now our country isn't that old yet, but yet to walk in a land where some of the structures and buildings are that old, you do gain a feeling that those things have weathered the storms of time and that they are still able to produce the shelter and safety that the original people had in mind. Tonight, I'd like to ask you to think with me about a reality, namely this church, that has not only stood the test of time, but we're promised it will continue to do so. That should be one of the greatest comforts to you and me, the fact it's not subject to the difficulties and weaknesses of men, but yet it has stood now since its establishment, and it will continue to do so. Might I mention as we begin that in fact the church could well be stated to be eternal in its ultimate character. By that I mean it goes even back past the creation story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Notice this statement by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 beginning in verse 10. As we kick off the lesson tonight, listen to these timeless words of Paul. He affirmed, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it significant that Paul, by inspiration, used the adjective eternal? It was the eternal purpose of God that he purposed in Christ, and what's more, the reality of that is witnessed and seen in the absolute nature of the church. So in a very real way, the church goes back even prior to the creation record in Genesis 1 and 2. But tonight, our thrust and focus won't so much be on that issue, but rather, what about the Old Testament? Did the Old Testament anywhere foretell and prophesy and specifically state matters declaring the reality someday of the church? If so, we ought to have great confidence 
and such an enriched feeling for the nature of that church. For if the God of heaven foresaw it and foretold it and made statements about its coming, even hundreds of years prior to its establishment, we ought to have a greater sense that this is not an afterthought. The church is not a fly-by-night scheme. It was in the eternal plan and mind of God, and even his prophets of old, he made known the reality of its someday coming. So tonight, with our task set before us, let us think somewhat about the nature of two specific texts in the Old Testament. Now, there is more than two, but these two shall plenty suffice us tonight to reflect upon the grandness and the greatness of the kingdom, namely the church. One of them was read in their hearing a moment ago as Lucas read that for us. Let's begin in, in Isaiah, the second chapter. The first of the major prophets, the prophet Isaiah, we will remember some of the facets and features of his prophecy. The book is a majestic masterpiece containing some 66 chapters. As you read and consider and reflect upon the nature of those chapters, we would do well to remember when Isaiah prophesied. It was about 740 B.C. when he began his prophetic labors. As we understand that, that is then well over 700 years before Jesus was ever born. It would have been over 760 years before the church was ever established. Wouldn't it be remarkable if we were to then read some specific prophecy about the church written over seven centuries prior to its coming? It would be entirely fair on our part at this point to note that the words that we just read a moment ago, those from Isaiah the second chapter, are very similar to those that you will find with me in Micah chapter 4. To more firmly place all that in mind, let us read the Micah passage. Micah the fourth chapter and let's begin reading, especially there in verse number 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more." As you listen to that reading and compare it to that text in Isaiah 2, they are almost identical. Very few words are different. Perhaps one way to picture that is this. Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries. They prophesied at about the same time in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, as one then contemplates the nature of what we just read, you'll notice that the wording was very specific. Let me emphasize that as I ask you to reflect on it with me. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. We clearly have reference to the fact that Isaiah spoke about the mountain of the Lord's house and immediately without doubt, our mind rushes to ask the question, what is the mountain of the Lord's house? Before we firmly and absolutely answer that, 
Notice with me some of the characteristics revealed by the prophet long ago. Once we appreciate the description, I think the answer and the identity will be obvious. Back in verse number 2 of Isaiah chapter 2, we notice that Isaiah used a future tense verb as he made reference to this. He again said, In the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be exalted. It was not yet in existence, whatever this mountain represented at the time Isaiah wrote. It was not a reality at the time Isaiah prophesied. But nonetheless, he clearly used a future tense verb and said, In those latter days, in the last days, this mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. But not only that, notice another aspect of the statement. It says that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established where, Isaiah? In the top of the mountains. We immediately gain the realization and take the impression that this mountain of the Lord's house, whatever it represented, would ultimately be established and come into being in a mountainous territory. It would be established in a mountainous place. But what's more? Let us read onward in verse number 2. It will be established not just in the mountains, but in the top of the mountains. And the word top signifies to you and me first and foremost that this entity, this mountain, would tower in importance above any other reality in terms of comparable institutions. So much so that verse 2 closes by saying it shall be exalted above the hills. Nothing else will compare favorably to it. It will be that important, that significant. It will tower in importance and vitality in the ultimate meaning above all of its contemporaries. Whatever this mountain pointed to is something we should desire to know more about. But let us look further at what else is declared. Many people, I'm sorry, all nations shall flow unto it, and many people shall go and say... Isn't it remarkable that here the fact is noted that all nations shall flow to it? Not some, not a few, not even most. All nations shall flow unto it. Whatever this mountain represented, whatever its reality would someday from Isaiah's time be, everybody should have a vital interest in it. All nations would flow to it. But let's look yet further. In the next verse, verse number 3, do we not appreciate the universal character of it in another way? Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's a significant thing to observe that that universal character is appreciated by many people. We remember in the days of the Old Testament, those who were God's people were so by physical birth primarily, and thus the chosen people were restricted. The Gentiles, to some extent, were left out. Whatever this mountain referred to, apparently God would be interested in all people. All would be invited. All would be welcomed. We immediately appreciate and are beginning to sense in a much deeper way what Isaiah had to say. But notice perhaps one final thing. Inasmuch as the law of God was involved here, and that God would show forth his law to all these, 
the means by which this mountain would be propagated and the means by which individuals would come would not be by military exercise. Isn't it amazing, he said, in verse number 4, they shall learn war no more. You and I know that there are religious institutions on earth who strive to gain converts, but they do it by using the sword. They do it by using carnal warfare. Isaiah said 740 years before the church was ever established that this mountain would not gain converts. Those wouldn't be brought to it by virtue of a gun or a sword. In fact, he said, they'll beat their spears into pruning hooks, their swords into plowshares. We appreciate then that this would be a peaceful enterprise. Whatever the mountain pointed forward to would be a peaceful entity. It would dwell in peace and propagate peace. Well, by now our attention has been so heightened and given the series that we began this morning, we can rest assured pretty much easily what this refers to, can't we? But let's use a verse of Scripture to make sure we understand that. What is this mountain of the Lord's house? As we come to verse 15 of 1 Timothy 3, let us allow the statement of God himself to identify what this house is. Let's begin again by noting that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the church of God, which is the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We looked at that text this morning, but we did not lay the emphasis upon the first part of it. There we are told that the house of God is the church. And thus when Isaiah foretold the establishment and coming of this mountain of the Lord's house, he was prophesying of the coming reality in his day of the church. We have then noted these characteristics that Isaiah foretold would need to identically be true relative to that body known as the church. Does the New Testament bear that out as correct? It does in every particular. It does in every regard. The church did not begin in the day of Isaiah. It started in a future day with respect to his time, and hence it was a future matter from his day. What's more, did the church begin in a mountainous area? It did. It began in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2. And as such, we remember that Jerusalem was the highest peak in that particular vicinity and area in all of Palestine. What's more? We also remember from Isaiah chapter 2, this body, this mountain of the Lord's house was to be a preeminent entity. Remember that it would rise above in importance and in significance above anything that could potentially be contemporary. What do we read in the New Testament about the importance of the church? We touched that this morning. Not needing to revisit all of that, we learned that the church was so important that our Savior gave his life to bring it into being. Acts 20, verse 28. We learned the church was so significant that a man can't be saved without it. Ephesians 5, verse 23. We learned that church was so significant that in the Revelation, the last book in all of God's holy Bible, it's there described as being that beautiful thing that God has protected and watched over. To say all that is to say that the church is a preeminently important body. It's vitally of interest eternally. What about the other matters of Isaiah 2? Looking back upon them, is the church universal? Absolutely. Does God today have certain that he calls and others he doesn't? 
I realize there is a doctrine first made popular by John Calvin that teaches that's the case. It's called predestination, but there isn't a word of truth in it. The Bible tells us in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Oh, God welcomes all who have a love for that which is the truth. In Romans 2, verse 11, one more time, Paul says, God is no respecter of persons. At the ending of Colossians 3, he makes the same statement again. You and I could realize then in greatness that though I be a miserable sinner, God loves me enough and welcomes me just as he does you. God desires every man and woman, every boy and girl to come to know his truth and when the age comes right to obey that in love. No wonder he urged from Peter's mouth in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. All of this tells us that indeed this church is universal. But notice, what about the law of God? That law that's been made known to you and me today, that beautiful law that is the law of Christ, that's discussed in the New Testament and is the pride and joy of you and me today. Perhaps finally, what about the peaceful character of the church? I noted a moment ago that you and I can name various organizations on earth that are supposedly religious in character, but they in fact are warfare in character and in nature. The Islam religion, the Muslim religion is one of them, isn't it? We might note that it was God's plan and God's will that his church propagate it by peaceful character, by peaceful means. You and I have in possession the gospel of peace, Romans 10, 15. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, John 14, 27. And that peace that you and I possess is a peace that can in fact pass all understanding, Philippians 4, verse 7. To say all that encourages us to know that we are not those who carry about any carnal sword. Our offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 17 and 18. It is the case then that as Paul wrote to the Corinthian brethren in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, he said that we bring every thought into captivity to Christ in a way that our weapons are not carnal, but are rather mighty toward God to the pulling down of strongholds. Paul knew that he was not to use a physical sword to gain converts to Jesus, but rather it was peaceful. And how wonderful and how lovely that is for us today. Could we not briefly summarize by saying the church was obviously no afterthought? It is amazing to each of us, I'm sure, that there are actually those in our world who teach the church was an afterthought, that there was no plan of God to establish it when he did. But yet Isaiah, over seven centuries beforehand, described it in marvelous detail, foretold exactly when it would be. Can we not then agree that by the prophecy of Isaiah, the church came about when God knew that it would, and it had the properties, the characteristics that God wished it to have? As we think about that text, I said that we would look at two of them tonight. Let's turn our attention in the remainder of our lesson to the other one. It too is found in one of the major prophets of the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Look with me, if you would, in the second chapter of that noble book, Daniel chapter 2. 
in the first 45 verses of that chapter, we have what may be one of the most startling, what may be one of the most remarkable scenes and events ever to occur in the life of that man named Nebuchadnezzar. We will not read those 45 verses, but we will in a moment select certain of them and set in our mind the thoughts that are under discussion there. I'm sure as we each think about this, many of these specifics will be very familiar, but let me at least review some of them. Because to gain the fullest impression, we need to remember the setting. This, of course, occurred long, long ago. From our perspective today, well over 2,600 years ago now. But nonetheless, the events that are described in this chapter are truly mind-boggling. Let's begin early on. The man who was reigning over the Babylonian Empire at this time was named Nebuchadnezzar. We remember that he had not too long before this ascended the throne of Babylon. Earlier it was the Assyrian Empire that ruled and had their way. They were mighty and strong. However, as kingdoms come and as kingdoms go, the time came when Egypt ultimately conquered Assyria and following them, Babylonia in 606 B.C. conquered 606, 605 conquered the very ones we call Egypt. In that mighty battle of Carchemish between Pharaoh Necho of Egypt on the one hand and Nebuchadnezzar on the other, Nebuchadnezzar won that battle. That gave Babylon the absolute ascendancy in the Middle Eastern part of the world. They were the dominant power. Little old Jerusalem was in her way. And as Nebuchadnezzar turned his attention toward this region of Jerusalem and Judah, the time came that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. One night this dream came upon him and it troubled him so that he awakened from his sleep and in the morning he was not able to remember either the dream and he did not know its interpretation. He understood though that in that day and time dreams had meaning. Quite often a dream had a great significance to it. Nebuchadnezzar called all of the Chaldean wise men, the sorcerers and the astrologers, and demanded that they reveal to him both the dream and its interpretation. These Chaldean wise men honestly admitted, no king has ever demanded what you're asking of us. In fact, they said, if you'll tell us the dream, we will make known its interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember the dream. In his sentence of fury and in his sentence of wrath upon them, he then decided all of them are to be slain and killed. But isn't it interesting that within that number was a young man named Daniel. And there were three kindly Jewish friends of his that we recognize as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel came to understand the sentence that the king had passed. That meant his death and the death of his friends. And Daniel said, let not the king be hasty. In essence, he said, why are we in such a hurry? I will make known the dream. Give me opportunity and I will reveal to the king the meaning of the dream as well as the dream itself. Daniel and his three friends then prayed earnestly to God and God indeed revealed the dream as well as its meaning. Daniel hastily came before King Nebuchadnezzar and revealed to him the greatness and power of that dream. In Daniel chapter 2, that has raised us to verse number 31. Please read with me verses 31 to 35 of Daniel chapter 2. As Daniel revealed this dream, this is what he said the dream it itself was. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. 
This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. Daniel said, King, this is what you saw. In your dream you witnessed this majestic, terrible image in the form of it was mighty. But the image was made of various metallic parts. It had a head of gold, arms and breast area of silver, midsection, if you will, of brass. But its lower legs were of iron, and finally the lowest was made of a mixture of iron and clay. But that's not all that Nebuchadnezzar saw. In addition to that, he saw a stone that was not cut out with hands. In fact, it was cut out without hands. And he says, this particular stone that you saw ran into the image or smote the image in the area of the iron and clay, and it broke the image to pieces, pulverized it. So much so that like the chaff of the wind, it was blown everywhere, but that stone that you saw increased it became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. As the particular dream itself was revealed, we noticed then that the next issue at hand was what does it mean? What's the significance of the dream? Daniel was quick to admit that God had made known, God had made known the things that would happen hereafter. Let's notice some of the latter parts then of what the aspects of that dream mean. Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he made mention of, that dream that Daniel had revealed, notice what is stated particularly in the, in the interpretation. Daniel quickly informed Nebuchadnezzar, those parts, those metallic sections of the image represent kingdoms of men. Kingdoms of men. In fact, Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. The Babylonian Empire was the first kingdom represented. It was one of pristine greatness and power. The head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel did not dwell too long upon that, for he said, There shall arise after you, Nebuchadnezzar, a kingdom inferior to you. This is the kingdom represented by the silver parts of the image. Those silver sections of that image we will understand from history indeed was another kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, though mighty and great he was, he only reigned for what you and I would see to be a relatively small amount of time and ultimately Babylon was conquered. She gave way to another kingdom. The Medes and Persians rose to prominence and when they conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., the handprint of greatness was transferred from Babylon over to Persia. The Persian Empire represented the silver sections of the image. But what's more, God wasn't finished. For not only would there be those two kingdoms, he was quick to say in verse number 39 that there shall arise a third kingdom of brass. Even that Persian kingdom would not be permanent. It would not be perpetual. Uh, yet another one would arise. How long history tells us did the Persians reign? 
Once they took control in 539 B.C., we will remember that some of the Old Testament history involved that kingdom. The book of Ezra is centered by and large in the days of the Persian monarch. Remember Cyrus, spoken of in the book of Ezra? He was the Persian king who allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem if they so desired. But notice with me that about 200 years later, in the middle section of the 300s, there was another empire that arose to prominence. This one conquered Persia. This kingdom was originally led by Philip of Macedon, who in fact was the father of Alexander the Great. The Greeks, the Grecian Empire, the Macedonian people, they rose to prominence in what great benefit the Grecian society has been to all of mankind since. As we appreciate that, they represented the section of brass. In fact, even the color of the Grecian army was brassy in color. This was a perfect fit for them. We might mention at this point that this section of Scripture isn't the only place that identified these kingdoms of men. Daniel chapter 7 mentions them again. There they are presented differently. In that chapter, it is by virtue of the prophecy Daniel revealed, and there they are presented as beasts that arise from the sea one by one. The characteristics of those beasts match the description of Daniel 2, and they also match the facts we know about these kingdoms of men. To this point, we've mentioned only three. We've covered the golden section, the silver section, and the brassy section of the image. What part remains? The iron section in the feet and the legs remain. What would be that kingdom that would come beyond or past the Grecian Empire? Well, history informs us of exactly what that was. We remember that Rome conquered Greece. And such individuals as Julius Caesar and others that came to prominence conquered them, and thus the fourth kingdom is mentioned. First, Rome was strong and was purely represented by iron. But as the days of the kingdom went onward, they weakened themselves as they lusted after ungodly things, and that's the significance of the being mixed with clay. But the point is, we have seen to this point what the elements of the image represent. One other part remains. What about the stone? What about the stone that crushed into the image and destroyed it? What does the stone represent? Daniel in his faithfulness revealed to Nebuchadnezzar the elements of the image, but he also revealed the meaning of the stone. Please jump forward with me to verse number 44. Let us read what truly is a monumental utterance from the mouth of Daniel. In verse 44, we have the meaning of the stone. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. As we then see the historical character, it now fits together so well. To Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said, there's going to be four kingdoms and you're the first one. After you will come if we supply the meaning of it. The realization that next will be the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. But then in the days of these kings, in the days of the Roman kings, God is going to set up a kingdom. This kingdom won't be left to mankind. Man will not set this one up. God will. And furthermore, this kingdom is such that one of its dramatic characteristics is this. It will never be destroyed. 
Once established, it would never cease to be. Now, that's a great contrast to those other kingdoms that he's just discussed. Babylon will come and then she will go. Greece will rise and then she will fall. Rome will come and then fade away into historical oblivion. But once the church was established, once the kingdom came to be, it would never cease to exist. We know that that's what Daniel had reference to, namely the church, because of that text we studied this morning. What is the kingdom of which Daniel spoke? We learned the Lord's statement this morning in Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus said that he built his ecclesia, his church, but in the next verse he said that church is the kingdom. The kingdom that Daniel foretold was the church. And he spoke these words over 500 years before the church was ever established. Daniel had labored in that Babylonian empire and on into the Persian, and he lived and he had these statements again over five centuries before the church ever came into being. That's truly a fascinating thing. To understand that God revealed to Daniel so long before it happened the particulars and the power of his body, the power of that church. Let us revisit some of the other features there in verse 44 and gain some deeper understanding about that church that would one day be from Daniel's perspective. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. You and I realize that today there are those who would straightforwardly tell you and me that the kingdom has not yet been established. That mankind should still wait until some future rapture when Jesus returns and then and only then will he establish his kingdom. From the perspective of prophecy, that cannot be. Notice sequentially once the fourth kingdom came and Rome has long since come and gone. The Roman Empire completely fell in 476 A.D. That's been 1,600 years ago. Jesus could not come back now and establish a kingdom, for if he did, Daniel lied. Daniel said it had to be in the days of the Roman kings. Rome is not a superpower anymore. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, we read in the New Testament of where the inspired writer lists various Roman rulers. The time was right when we read of that text to know then that the apparent time of the last days had come. It was time in the Roman Empire for the church, God's kingdom, to be established. Can we not then furthermore see in verse 44 that this church was established exactly by the God of heaven? Human hands never touched it. It was not the decision of men to establish the church. It was not the counsel or decision of some group or convention of men to bring the church into being. God chose the time and God brought it into being. Furthermore, he notes for us that this kingdom once established shall never be destroyed. That means it is far more powerful than any kingdom of men. You and I may picture the United States to be a great superpower, and indeed we are. But our greatness is only because of at one time we were loyal to God. That's debatable, it would seem to me, these days. But the point is, this kingdom spoken of here will far outlast any kingdom of men. You and I can well remember what happened in 1989. 
all throughout our lifetime, at least those who are old enough to remember that, know that we lived in the shadow of a Cold War. It was us and the Soviet Union. It was who could have the greater number of nuclear weapons and who can have the greater number of embattlements. As great as that Soviet empire was, it crumbled in 1989. The kingdoms of men, they come and they go, they rise and they fall, but God's kingdom, once established, would never cease to be. We are now 20 centuries this side of Acts chapter 2. We're 2,000 years later and the kingdom is still going strong. And what's more, it will go strong until our Savior returns to close the affairs of time. You and I should then long to be a part of a body that is not subject to the fancies and whims of human weakness, to the foibles of those things that are man's fallacies. Do we not see then in the church that which is truly time-tested? We noticed at the very outset of the lesson how we enjoy things that are time-tested. They have shown themselves to be trustworthy and reliable. There is no institution more reliable than the church. There is no institution, no entity, no kingdom, no body that one can rely upon any more surely than is the church. For as Jesus himself would state, and as these prophets stated, this kingdom will stand forever. This kingdom will never cease to be. Can't we be thankful to be a part of that body, to be a part then of that kingdom? As we've made note of these things, could we summarize these two texts with some closing thoughts to our lesson tonight? We have, by virtue of these texts in Isaiah, Micah, and Daniel, reaffirmed in our mind truly how great the church is. Our Savior shed his blood for it. And that body has a government, a kingdom, a reality which truly shall long outlast you me. You and I may well die, and long since our bodies may have been placed in the, in the bosom of Mother Earth. But we realize the church will go on. It shall stand forever because its monarch, its king, is absolutely undefeatable. No man can overcome it. No group of men can defeat it. No group of men can crush it and drive it away. The Roman Empire, as great as it was, ultimately crumbled, but the church lived on. When we come in our study to the book of Revelation, somewhat later in our studies, we will learn then about how that those Christians, those brethren of yours and mine who lived in that day, suffered greatly under the duress due to the Roman Empire. And at one point in Revelation 6, they prayed, God, how long shall it be until our cause is vindicated, until Rome is defeated? From their perspective, it must have looked like Rome would never fall. But oh, look at what you and I know today. Rome is gone. Rome has long since ceased to be, but the church lives strong today. You and I can be so appreciative of being a part of this body, but might we ask, will there be one or more tonight within the sound of my voice that's not a member of this body, that's not a member of this organization, this kingdom that Daniel and Micah and Isaiah spoke of so long before Jesus was ever in the flesh upon earth? If you're not a member of that body, Recognize tonight that God had an eternal plan for your salvation. And he sent his son to earth, dispatched him in order to bring that to reality. The church is the body. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Galatians 4 verse 4. Are you then a citizen of that kingdom, a member of that body? If not, let tonight be the night. 
The baptismal waters behind me are warm and ready. We could assist you in affirming your belief, your repentance, taking your confession and aiding you in immersion in baptism. If you've done that but have not been faithful and true to that beautiful kingdom and to its king, namely Jesus, come back to your first love tonight. If we could be of assistance in offering prayers on your behalf, we'd be happy to do that. If any of that's the need of your heart and life, come if you would even now while together we stand and while we sing.